Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to discuss what is on everyone's minds and bodies all the time, especially you listening right now. Your body is covered with the coronavirus. And we're going to discuss how it is affecting the global supply chain of essential medicines. And then Olga Emilianova, one of our heads of ESG research, will join us to give a hot take on why it's so hard to know where anything comes from ever in our economy. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. The coronavirus continues to spread at an alarming rate. It's on every continent but Antarctica which your next penguins and the industries across the globe have felt the effects of the pandemic because people are either getting sick or everyone's getting worried about the spread of contagion and just shutting down production. But now COVID 2019, as this strand of the coronavirus is called, is affecting people's health in another way. It's creating shortages in the supply of both basic and crucial medicines. This is because a lot of the active pharmaceutical ingredients that are the most important parts of drugs are made in both India and China, both of which have seen disruptions caused by COVID. For example, on March 3rd, Indian authorities ordered the country's vast pharmaceutical industry to stop exporting 26 drugs and drug ingredients, most of them antibiotics, due to concerns around having enough local supply. But what COVID really did was highlight a very interesting ESG risk that we have been researching for some time, supply chain transparency and the pharmaceutical industry's issues with quality and control. And to guide me through this, I have two of my colleagues that are veritable healthcare aficionados, Aurelie Rott and Julia Jaguer. And just so everyone can trust us in this discussion, because there's a lot of information going around, but it's not always from experts, I was wondering if you could both give me your background on this industry and how long you've been covering it uh, for MSCI. I've been covering healthcare since 2000, gosh, 2008, 2009. And before that, um, you know, studied chemistry, mostly mostly organic chemistry and also epidemiology, which is um, the study of, of disease uh, in larger populations. For me, I've covered the healthcare sector for eight years, pretty much since I joined MSCI. And Orly, you just wrote a great report about quality control issues in pharmaceutical companies in India. And I'm not sure the report is going to be made public for everybody listening, but it will be available on our platform, ESG Manager, if you're a subscriber to that. And we're going to talk about it a lot on here, so we're going to give you kind of a preview. But Julia, you were on two weeks ago, and we were talking about the importance of pharma in developing vaccines for infectious diseases and pandemics, and how the industry is on the front line of finding a solution. But we were just focusing on the new development of drugs, not the current productions of drugs already in use. And first of all, I need to give you all some drug 101, the listeners, not you both, obviously. Drugs are typically made up of two components, the active pharmaceutical ingredient or API. And the, that's the main ingredient for any drug, the thing that makes a drug work. And the excipients, which are chemically inactive substances such as lactose or mineral oil uh, that are in pills or capsules. 
And just like the world uses regions to manufacture its goods, the world uses certain regions to manufacture its drugs. And usually your average patient or investor has lived in blissful ignorance to those supply chain structures. But Julia, COVID has removed that ignorance, hasn't it? You know, with with COVID, um, I think what what's really happened is it's it's highlighted a global reliance on medical needs, and there's really two aspects to this. The first is, of course, a vulnerability to supply supply chain disruptions, which isn't exclusively centered around healthcare. It obviously affects um, other sectors and industries as well. And then, secondly, is really the safety and also efficacy of medicines, which is a completely separate issue, uh, and really one that Orly and I have been looking at quite closely. Um, and tracking for nearly a decade. Most of this comes out of the, the US FDA. And for those who have seen the announcement um, in late February, about a week ago, the FDA announced one drug shortage um, that's related to the novel coronavirus. And that was due to manufacturing challenges. On top of that, um, they've identified about 20 drugs that rely exclusively on what we call these APIs from China um, and are also investigating single source drugs. So really reliant on only one supplier where, you know, you might have um, much more higher vulnerability to supply disruptions. The good news is that none of these these 20 drugs that they've identified are considered critical drugs. So I think there's that that silver lining a little bit. But that being said, things things can change pretty quickly. Um, and just I think, you know, it's it's worth pointing out that there are certain drugs um, that are really more vulnerable to shortages than others. So, for example, oncology medicines, especially generic cancer drugs, um, are among the most vulnerable that, that we've seen in healthcare. The second is injectable drugs. If you look at the timeline over the past 20 years, um, the bulk of uh, sterile injectables um, is really where supply drug shortages have come from. And this is simply because the manufacturing processes are, are really much more complicated. And then thirdly is antimicrobials. So this includes, you know, of course, antibiotics. So we have about 97% of antibiotics in the U.S. are imported from China. Uh, does Do doctors have any transparency in the critical supply? Let's say I have a patient and they need a certain type of drug and I know that this drug is manufactured or gets its APIs from an area that's going to be affected by COVID. Do I have the transparency around that to be able to say to my patient, hey, you got to either stock up on this or, or be a little bit worried about a undersupply or is that just kind of up in the air? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the tricky, it's a tricky question. And you're absolutely right, Mike. People don't know and even physicians don't know which um, which types of of medicines um, will be in drug supply? There's there are pretty pretty loose guidelines in terms of manufacturers having to report to the FDA. Um, they really only have to give six months notice, and that's for for critical um, critical drug supply. And even then, that that definition of critical supply is up to the manufacturers. But how big of a problem is this for? investors that might worry their company is relying on a supply chain that won't be there if disaster hits. I mean, how big of a problem is it for patients that might be relying on the supply chain that won't be there if disaster hits? You know, we, we don't know. We don't know where, what our specific drug whether we're going to face a drug shortage or supply because we have no transparency into specifically whether that manufacturer, what types of inventory they have. Um, and also, you know, how quickly, how quickly um, mass production will resume. Okay, just to summarize, we know more about how much the CEO of a pharmaceutical company is getting paid 
than where the ingredients for the drugs that pharmaceutical company uses uh, is actually sourced. I think now that we have laid out how opaque this sourcing for this industry is, we can move into something uh, to, to more specific cases. And there have been two massive disruptions in the global supply chain due to COVID. One in India and one in China. Aurelie, can you take me through what's going on and why it's something we all need to pay attention to? Sure. So, you know, the U.S. sources a lot of active pharmaceutical ingredients from either India or China. But an interesting fact is that India is also sourcing about 67% of its active pharmaceutical ingredients from China as well. Um, meaning that with the current crisis going on in China, the Indian uh, manufacturers are facing shortages of the active pharmaceutical ingredients. And why does it matter is that India uh, is a has been dubbed the pharmacy of the world. It's well, it's the largest uh, provider of generic drugs globally. So if they can't produce their drugs, there's going to be a shortage of drug of drugs in the countries where they export their medicines. Right? They announced it yesterday. India restricted the exports of several drugs and antibiotics already. So you know the fears of uh, shortage of essential medicines that Julia was just talking about is actually becoming more and more real on a daily basis. But what's interesting is that the COVID crisis might have illuminated something that regulators and investors need to already watch, regardless of what's going on in a viral sense, because there is this issue with pharmaceutical companies in India being plagued with operational and safety issues for years. And we know this because the US FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, which in a very American way is a global regulator on the quality of drug manufacturing and the safety of drug manufacturing. And they, they're also doing this because the US is the largest drug market globally. And the FDA sends warning letters to drug producers that are violating some quality or safety procedure. And around half of all warning letters sent by the FDA this year went to India. About about 20% went to China. Orly, is this just because there are more manufacturers in those areas, or is there a systemic issue that we need to address? You know, there's a wider question around quality management processes and business contingency plans. So when we looked at the Indian companies, we found that their business continuity plans are rather short-term focused, as we're seeing now. And so they may not be sufficient to counter the supply issues because those companies have stocks for about uh, three months. Uh, but that's only a part of the quality management you know, the Indian companies have been under the microscope of the FDA for quality requirements for years now. And we looked at the trend over the past five years. So where were those warning letters sent? And, you know, 2015 and before, the the FDA targeted mostly, well, U.S. facilities and some facilities abroad. But then they've shifted their focus outside of the U.S. drastically. And there's been a definite focus on India and China over the past, say, three years. Well, why? Why aren't they focusing on um, other global multinational producers of drugs? How does this compare to a company like Johnson & Johnson? Compared to other companies, and, you know, you have much bigger companies like Johnson & Johnson, but, like, on a cumulative intensity basis, like, Orly was saying in terms of recalls and regulatory warnings, the Indian generic manufacturers are just 
far, far higher. And we're able to quantify that in our research. And that's what's particularly important. I think you tend to hear about these things like substandard vaccines coming out of China or, you know, it's a, it's a big thing, but you actually don't know how big it is compared to other other companies and other industries. But what we're able to show is that that gap is actually quite substantial um, and much, much worse uh, comparatively to to companies that are really much larger and even have a much larger um, you know, supply chain footprint. What if a troubled India or China were to cut off our supply of antibiotics? Um, why isn't there a call from investors to pour more capital into the domestic production of drugs? It's cost effective. The, the, the costs are lower to produce in China versus the U.S. And that's not to say that the U.S. doesn't have manufacturing of APIs. So they have, you know, about 25 to 30 percent of API manufacturing here. But the bulk has shifted over the last couple decades to China simply because of cost. Um, and then there's also other things like you need a lot of space for manufacturing. Um, the, the input costs are lower. Um, so, so it's a, a purely business decision, but you're absolutely right that, you know, we talk about energy needs and, um, but, you know, given the fact that we are so highly reliant, if, 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 if China or, <laughs> or India wanted to, to really hurt us, they could just block off our, our supply of, um, antimicrobials and, and antibiotics. I mean, pen penicillin, for example, is exclusively manufactured in China. I assume we would want our drug companies to have like dual sourcing, backup manufacturing, mitigation systems in place for key products that they would be the best suited to deal with these disasters. And you actually say that in your report and companies with domestic supply chains, and you say this as well, might be less of a risk in a way than a global supply chain company, except in regards to cost. But in the U.S., in the U.S., we pay the most money ever, so I'm not exactly sure what is being saved here. If you were an investor with an ESG mindset and you invested in the drug industry, what would you want from the company you invest in? You know, transparency around the supply chain. Frankly, so we were talking about the Indian companies. There was only one that actually mentioned um, specifically its reliance on Chinese um, suppliers. They said, okay, we rely on Chinese suppliers for 30% of our API's needs. And, you know, we're quite detailed about it. The other companies were much more opaque in terms of their, you know, their supply chain, who they rely on, and, you know, the sort of contingency plans that they have. So it's... Transparency in the supply chain is an issue, and it's not an issue just for the pharma sector, but it's just an issue for every single industry. Yeah, but just for the for the pharma sector, I mean, that's pretty concerning. Where where are the regulators on this? Surprising that it wasn't addressed by the U.S. regulators, you know, in terms of reporting, given the the, in, the scrutiny that they're putting on those companies. You know, how do you mean? Well. You know the FDA or you know could could request companies to actually be extremely transparent as who's your supplier for which portion of your APIs and you know where are they located and you know provide a detailed list pretty much right. I, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna kind of play devil's advocate here, but um, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the F FDA and transparency, and that's of course because you know the U.S. is the world's largest.
pharmaceutical market, but it's also up to other countries to, to build that transparency. The FDA is completely resource strapped. And right now the FDA is already, you know, it's already increased, increased its compliance and oversight to other, other, other countries. Um, but, but the FDA is not, is not exclusively like can't be the whole global regulatory <laughs> body. Um, other, other regulatory agencies also need to kind of do their part. And now with some spices, Olga Emilianova, who joins us as one of the heads of ESG research. And the reason Olga's joining us is because she wrote a report in 2016 called Identifying Environmental and Social Risks in Supply Chains. And basically, she's been covering it ever since. And she has an update for us because I want to know, Olga, whether this is a problem that's just based in the pharmaceutical industry or if it's an industry-wide problem in the entire market and we're all just groping in the darkness. Problem with the supply chain, it's not necessarily that it's bad or unreliable. It's just that we don't know exactly who produces what. And I think you're referring to the report that uh, uh, we wrote in 2013 on transparency within the supply chain and some of the social and environmental issues embedded in supply chain. So in 2013, when we wrote that report, um, if I believe correctly, there were only 5% of companies in our coverage of consumer staples and consumer discretionary goods that reported any meaningful information about the structure of their supply chain. So the location, um, the number of the supply chain, and ideally the full list. Now it's 2020. I think that number has not changed or it changed only marginally. And I think it's interesting to see that you know a lot changed so far during those years in terms of the technology development, in terms of the transparency, um, blockchain, you know, the, the chipping of the containers, the, the paper trails, satellite imaging, um, information sharing. There's so much more happening in the world. And yet it's still so low. And it's still so low. So... I, I think that the transparency of the supply chain and the composition of supply chain did improve, but it did not improve for me and you and for the investors. I think this is a very valuable information that is used internally um, for optimization of the supply chain, for the traceability of the supply chain, but there is still a very strong reluctance to increase the transparency of this information so that uh, the users of the product, of the end product, knew exactly where those products came from. Why? Is that just giving too much information for the customer or the investor? Is it too much? Do companies not want to open up that can of worms? That's a very good question. And I think the general excuse that we hear from the companies is that it is um, um, competitor-sensitive information. But in many cases, uh, you know, the same production facilities are used by the same companies, by the same competitors. And they're very well aware of that. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Julia and Orly and Olga for joining me to talk about the news with an ESG twist. And I wanted to thank you out there for listening. I hope you're staying safe and you're not sick and nothing's wrong. Um, I hope I'm not sick either. Who knows? If you like what you heard, please rate and review us. I'm always trying to learn and get better. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much and talk to you next week.
the MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.